quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. And now for another classic Axe Files episode, I sat down last spring with Aaron Sorkin, the brilliant screenwriter and playwright behind stirring films like The American President and the iconic television series The West Wing. Beyond his signature crackling dialogue, Sorkin's work shares a common thread, an abiding, almost romantic faith in our democracy with all its blemishes and the power of imperfect but well-motivated leaders who push back against darker forces. All of that was on display in his widely praised Broadway adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird, which was taking place when we spoke last spring. Here's that conversation. Real honor to be with you. I had the pleasure of enjoying your uh, your new treatment of To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway Thank last you. night. It was spectacular, and we'll have a chance to to talk about that. But I want to talk about about you and how you got to this point in life. Okay, uh, are you sure you want to talk about I me? I do. I do. That's what we do here. Okay. That's the Axe Files, you know. That's yep. that's our that's our thing. Um, and uh, and it's an interesting journey. The Sorkins were Jewish family, probably a classic story came over. You know, it is a classic story. As a matter of fact, my, my grandparents, my father's parents, uh, as teenagers, they were chased here from Russia. Uh, the Tsar's police force was burning down all the uh, yeah. shuttles. Uh, and they, they put down roots in Brooklyn. He was a tailor and she was a seamstress. And uh, he and his friends didn't like the... The, the conditions, the conditions that their wives were working in, sweatshop conditions, uh, and uh, they formed what would become the International Ladies Garment uh-huh. Workers Union, uh, and uh, it was easy because back then being uh, a, a Russian Jewish union organizer was very popular uh, in this country. So he he got his uh, head beaten uh, a couple of times. Anyway, uh, their son, my father, uh, on his 18th birthday. Uh, enlisted in the army and went and fought in World War II, came back and on the GI Bill went to college. Where did he fight? Uh, in um, uh, Europe, and then he was moved to the Philippines. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, but he came back, went to college and law school on the GI Bill, and because of that, because of the GI Bill, uh, the, uh, our family went from lower middle class to middle class to upper middle class in one generation. Uh, you know that's what government can do, and they. My, my parents had three kids, we had five kids. Uh, all eight went to college without the government's help. Uh, 
all of us are paying taxes now and contributing. It was yeah. that, that GI Bill was a great investment. Your mom was a school teacher, mm -hmm. and I learned from a mutual friend, Eli Addy, yeah. who uh, worked with you on West on the West Wing, uh, that she was a school teacher at the public school here in New York City, where Eli and, Eli and I both attended PS40. That's right. When was she there? I wonder if she was there when I was there. She was there before I was born. She, she was there for uh, 45 years uh, until she retired. She taught fourth grade. Uh, so she was there from before I was born until about uh, 15, 20 years ago. That was a phenomenal school. You, when you talk about government, um, you know, I went through all the public schools in New York mm -hmm. City, through public school in New York City, had some teachers at PS40 who were in the 60s, you know, third grade, they're exposing us to Martin Luther King and ex we're talking about the civil rights movement right. and people like uh, Ogden Nash, who was a great uh, it, uh, it, it, poet, came to our class and John Chiari. Came to your class? Came to our class. Wow. Uh, it seemed like a great school. I always liked the stories that my mother would tell of you know, you know what was going on in class and what was going on in school. I remember coming home from college uh, for Thanksgiving. And uh, I just asked my mom, you know, what are you doing with the kids uh, in class? And she said, we're doing the Explorers. And I said, like, you know, Magellan, Balboa. And she said, you're Magellan, Balboa, Columbus and his four ships. And I said, what is it? You mean his three ships? And she said, no, 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 the four ships, the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa, and the Maria. Like, Mom, it's the Santa Maria. It's not. My mother looked at my father and said, would you straighten your kid out, uh, uh, please? And my father had one of those, uh, please don't drag me into this, uh, uh, looks on his face. But I, I thought to myself, there's decades worth of fourth graders who've been taught that Columbus <laughs> came over on four ships, and some of those fourth graders had to have gone on to be teachers themselves. So the toothpaste is out of the tube now. Yes. Part of our country believes that Columbus <laughs> came over on four ships. Yeah, 45 years, a fair number of people. That's right. Yeah. Um, you talk about your, 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 this conversation you had. I read an account of your... Uh, family life and your family dinners and you know people when people talk about Aaron Sorkin they talk about dialogue and the the sort of like incredibly fast-paced uh, impossibly witty kind of dialogue that your characters um, your characters share and I read somewhere that this had its genesis at your dinner table yeah at my dinner table also with my friends but uh I was, um, everyone in my family is uh, objectively smarter than I am, uh, you know, by, by, by any metric, smarter than I am. And uh, I always enjoyed our, our dinner table conversations. And at our dinner table, anybody who used one word when they could have used 10 just wasn't trying hard <laughs> enough. Uh, and I like this, and, and except for my mother, the school teacher, the, the rest are all lawyers. And uh, I, I always just enjoyed the sound of a, a good argument, of a, um, but have you looked at it this way, uh, kind of argument. Same thing with my friends. When, uh, when we would get together and play nickel and dime poker uh, on Friday nights, my, my friends were all objectively smarter than I was. Uh, I, th I think I was the mascot or something. Uh, and, and so I always, I just liked the, that sound and I tried to, in my writing, just tried to imitate it phonetically. 
You've done well for a slacker, I will say. Uh, your parents uh, also introduced you to the theater. That's right. I read somewhere that they took you to see Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf when you were nine years old, and it struck me, boy, that's pretty raw stuff for a nine-year-old. That's right. My, um, uh, my parents, uh, they did. They, they took me to see a lot of plays for no other reason than they, they had a theater-going habit uh, from... Uh, when they were a young married couple, it was much more affordable than uh, than it is now. So they took me to see all kinds of plays. Many of them uh, I was too young to understand, like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf when I was nine years old. But I loved the sound of dialogue. It, it didn't bother me that I couldn't quite understand what was going on on stage. The dialogue sounded like music to me, and uh, and I wanted to imitate that sound. And you, yeah, this is so it's so interesting to me because. Uh, I do, you know, in my career, I worked a lot with speechwriters and, and with President Obama, who was, a, who was a great speechwriter. And I used to watch him edit speeches and move words around uh, because of the cadence of the words and the rhythm and the sound of the words against each other. Uh, it's a, it's a, a part of language that is, is not well appreciated, but great, great language is musical. There's no doubt about it. John Favreau uh, yeah. talks rhapsodically about uh, uh, writing with President Obama, yes. and uh, in uh, beyond the writing, his oratorical skills are ungodly. Um, uh, President Clinton as well, but uh, it's it, it sort of an A and A plus uh, situation with with Barack Obama. Uh, Watching him speak, you know, watching him just lift up an entire room and 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 kind of rearrange the ions uh, in the air with his speeches is fantastic. But I have never seen anybody uh, time an audience uh, as as well as he does. Uh, I know exactly when to hold uh, uh, for the applause. And when to blow through the applause so that it keeps um, yeah. uh, uh, that it builds to a crescendo, uh, uh, those oratorical gifts, which are sometimes and, and I know that they were at, at least in uh, at least in two thousand eight, the first time around, uh, that the uh, the McCain campaign they, they tried to turn yeah, that into I remember a, it well. Uh, yeah. uh, that, that, that something facile that right. you know it's it's well, just and a I lot think of it's natural not to want to be seduced and they played off of that you know the, who is this guy really are you being taken in okay but isn't a great quality in a president the ability to inspire us to lift us up um, I have to believe that both these presidents Barack Obama and Bill Clinton were paying attention in church uh, and uh, they were perhaps not paying attention to what the minister wanted them to pay attention <laughs> to. Um, uh, but uh, I, I never saw it as uh, snake oil salesmanship. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw it as a wonderful skill set for, uh, for a president. Well, that was, that's not shocking since in the course of your writing career, you've written a lot of oratory for a lot of mm -hmm. for a number of presidents so fictional presidents and it's reflected there but you didn't start off thinking you were going to be a writer you were attracted to theater but you thought you'd be an actor i thought i was going to be an actor and uh i was uh you know i was 
I, I was in all the drama club plays and community theater, and then I went on to college and got a, a BFA in theater. It, it wasn't until, I mean, literally the day well, before, I... Before you go on to what, yeah. what converted you to writing, um, what was it that attracted you to acting? Which is, act to me, I, I'm in awe of actors because the ability to sort of subjugate yourself to a character to become, mm-hmm. and a great actor does, I watched Jeff Daniels in your play last night, well-known actor, mm-hmm. and he, you know, with every famous actor, they come on stage, and at first you're aware that it's them, and as time goes by, and if they're good, very little time, now they're the character. And remember, and we'll probably get to this a little later uh, uh, in our talk, but Jeff had uh, an e- even bigger obstacle to, has every night, an even bigger obstacle to overcome uh, when he walks out on stage. It isn't just that that's Jeff Daniels from Dumb and it's Dumber. and Gregory uh, Peck. Could, exactly right. Yeah. Um, uh, this is the first time Atticus Finch has ever not looked like Gregory Peck. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Je- you should have Jeff in here. He- he's had a phenomenal attitude about it since we started uh, a, a while back, um, uh, which is just that, hey, Gregory Peck's the only one who's played the part so far. Um, uh, now I'll be the second one uh, to play the part and see what happens from here. And uh, Well, you're he, a good person to work with in that regard because you had the audacity to take a classic and really rework it, uh, you know, retain the spirit of it, but contemporized it uh, in it a way that was that takes was, a very healthy ego to uh, <laughs> uh, decide you're going <laughs> to write the Colin you could, over so, again. <laughs> yeah, is it something? I, I'm reminded of the Woody Allen joke about he was asked what his latest project was, and he said he bought the rights to My Fair Lady, and we're taking the, was taking the music and <laughs> turning it back into Pygmalion. Did, but uh, would you have attempted? I, I don't want to r- jump ahead in the in the story here, but would you have attempted? Uh, to do this kind of project when you were just starting out? I mean, would, were you that audacious then? You may have been. I don't know. I may have been. That's a fair question. Chances are what would have drawn, it, uh, drawn me to it then was the same thing that drew me to it now. Uh, when uh, it was, uh, I guess, coming up on four years ago uh, now that uh, our producer, Scott Rudin, called me and he said... Um, uh, so I have something very exciting to talk to you about. And in the past, when Scott had called and said I have something very exciting to talk to you about, I ended up writing The Social Network, Moneyball, Steve Jobs. Uh, it's, so I was listening. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and he said that uh, after several years of working on it, I've acquired the stage rights to Kill a Mockingbird, and I want you to write it. And I had two thoughts simultaneously, which is, ah, I get to do a play. This is going to be great. I get to be back in a theater. I get to be back in a rehearsal room. I get to work with Bartlett Cher, who was being dangled in front of me uh, as the, the director. director yes. Yeah. Uh, so it was a thrilling opportunity. And at the very same time, I was thinking, this is how I'm going to die, uh, <laughs> uh, right here uh, on this hill. Uh, so I honestly didn't think there was anything in it for me. I, I, I didn't think that there was any upside at all. The best I could do was no harm, uh, uh, you know. Uh, um, this anxiety thing is not new to you. I, no. Um, uh, uh, listen, I, I, I have the equal amount of anxiety 
writing anything, which is the maximum. Uh, yeah. on that. There's just no room for, uh, uh, for more anxiety. I, the, the, the anxiety uh, that I was feeling in that initial phone call of this is to kill a mockingbird and what am I doing? Uh, uh, why all I can do really is make it less than, uh, than it was. Right. Like why, the Mona Lisa. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and why would I want to put on a nightly display uh, comparing my skills to Harper Lee's? Uh, I, I, it, I won't come out uh, ahead in that contest. It's just, it's a, it's a suicide mission. Um, it's certainly not something you do for the money. What the, the breakthrough was, I wrote a first draft that wasn't very good at all. It was the best you could say about it was that it was harmless, which is probably the worst thing you could say about a play and certainly To Kill a Mockingbird. That first draft, it was, I just took the, the necessary scenes from the book to tell the story and I stood them up. Uh, and I just had the, uh, the characters talking to each other. And in the end, it felt like a greatest hits album recorded by a tribute band. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a good talk with Scott uh, and threw that first draft out and started over again. And what I did was I simply erased from my head the word adaptation. Um, uh, stop thinking that your job is to gently swaddle this book in bubble wrap uh, and, and lovingly transfer it to a stage. Write a new play. A play has to have a protagonist. A protagonist has to change by the end of the story. A protagonist has to be flawed. Atticus is this, in the book is the same at the end of the book as he is at the beginning. He's carved out of marble. He's not yeah. flawed. And it's because Atticus isn't the protagonist in the book. Scout is. Uh, um, uh, Atticus is is the central character, but he's the guy who has all the answers uh, in the book. And I, in the play, I wanted him to wrestle with the questions. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, that led me to a a, a place uh, where suddenly the play became incredibly relevant, wonderfully relevant. That it was no longer uh, a museum piece. It wasn't an exercise in nostalgia. Uh, and for instance, uh, Atticus says uh, throughout the novel, uh, that there's goodness that can be found in anyone. Uh, okay. Uh, goodness can be found in anyone. All you have to do is you have to get inside someone else's skin and crawl around uh, for a while. Right. He excuses Bob Ewell's racism, uh, saying you got to understand he just lost his WPA job. Who falsely job. accuses Tom Robinson? Uh, uh, of, he's a of, vile of racist and falsely right. accuses yes, uh, Tom Robinson of raping his daughter, sending that man to the electric chair. Uh, he excuses uh, a neighbor, Mrs. Henry Dubose, also a vile racist. You got to understand she recently stopped taking her morphine and. Uh, so people get this way. He excuses the whole town. This is the deep south. You, you, you got to give them time. Right. Um, Much to the frustration of his children and others. Yeah. It, in the play, uh, in the book, no, no one understand. was frustrated I by understand. it. And we were taught when when we all read this book in in seventh, eighth, uh, ninth grade uh, that this there's goodness in everyone quality is a virtue. And so while I was writing all this, Charlottesville happened. Uh, and suddenly there's, there's goodness that can be found in everyone uh, sounded to me too much like there were fine people on both sides. 
uh, that there Which wasn't. Which is what President Trump said. Yeah. There yeah. wasn't enough daylight between the two. And, uh, and, and so there were all these opportunities to, yeah. uh, with a quarter turn of the wrench, to, uh, uh, to make it a, a new play. I, I want to ask you one more question about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I want to get back, since you're my protagonist right now, okay. <laughs> I want to get back to your journey. All right. But, uh, uh, I, I, you'll have no problem finding flaws, by the way. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's a big debate going on today within um, the Democratic Party about, from, uh, about how one approaches those voters who voted for Donald Trump. And there is this debate about those who say you got to separate out him from those voters, there are reasons that they might vote that way. Essentially, there's good in everyone, uh, and you know, we ought to find the core in those people and try and bring some of them over. And there are others who say, "You support Donald Trump? That's a bridge too far." Mm-hmm. And I thought a little bit about that when I was hearing this going on on stage last night because it's not just that trump said there's both sides but there are there's this genuine discussion i mean i fall on one side of it i do believe that i don't think everybody who voted for trump is a toothless ignorant racist and shouldn't be treated or viewed that way and if the democratic party does probably to their own detriment uh but i was wondering if that debate was playing in your head at at all as well that debate plays in my head a lot, and certainly uh, while doing this play, there's no chance that I'm going to sit across the table from David Axelrod and give my opinion on, uh, you know, uh, politically, what's the best way for a Democrat to win the White House. In, Go ahead, in, man. In I have no, I mean, it's an open question, so. I, 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 he, but here's what I can tell you. He, here's where I, I think uh, the, the, the internal conflict that Democrats have, the internal conflict that I have, uh, and, and, and I don't think I'm alone. It's this. Um, we we want to win. We need to win. Uh, so that that is the number one uh, priority. I, I, you know, I think looking at the field of 19 or 20 uh, Democrats that are running now, I yeah. think that pretty much any Democrat uh, would say, I, I like them all, um, and I'm going to be in favor of the person who gives us the best chance of, uh, of beating Donald Trump. I would go a step further and say that Donald Trump needs to be beaten soundly uh, it, it, it can't be a close race. He needs to be beaten soundly so that it will be a very long time before a political candidate tries Trumpism as a strategy uh, again. Uh, it, it needs to be very clear that it's a losing strategy in this country. But the conflict uh, that we're having is we want to win, yet I'll give you an example. It drove me out of my mind when Democrats jumped up and down on Hillary Clinton for the basket of deplorables comment. Um, deplorable is the right word. Uh, I, I don't believe she drove off a single voter. I don't think there was a Trump voter uh, uh, who was originally a Hillary voter but felt insulted uh, and, uh, and went to the other side. Uh, and I appreciated that she was calling it what it was. You could probably talk me out of that. Yeah, I, I would try. I don't want to do it right here because there are other things I want to talk about. I would just say this. When you when you say things like that and you cast a, a wide swath over a whole uh, group of people, 
um, you're going to... I do think that it made it easier for Trump to say, these people disdain you, they look down on you, and uh, I'm going to be your champion. So I think it was un unwise of her to use those words. And the proof of it is that Steve Bannon is still out there referring to Trump supporters as the deplorables as a rallying point sure. for yeah. them. And, so. uh, and they refer to themselves that way. I, um, in writing the character of Bob Ewell in the play, uh, to me, he was, uh, listen, ordinarily, if I'm, if I'm writing an anti-hero, um, or, or, or an antagonist, a, a, a villain. I can identify something in that character. I don't want to judge the character. I want to write the character as if they're making their case to God why they should be allowed into heaven. Um, Nicholson and a few good men. Um, mm -hmm. uh, his you can't handle the, uh, the yeah. truth speech. Uh, if, if that's done right, if, if, if I write that uh, uh, well, uh, uh, if it's performed well, uh, you should have uh, an audience that's horrified for just a moment that they thought to themselves, he's got a good point, um, uh, in the speech in defense of yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, being yeah. complicit in the murder mm -hmm. of a Marine. With Bob Ewell, uh, uh, so, so I want to find something about that character that I, uh, that I can defend, mm -hmm. uh, that I can relate to. Hard to do with Bob Ewell. Impossible to do with Bob Ewell. And you don't want the person to just be twir twirling their mustache. You want to make some kind of human connection. What I did was go to Breitbart. Uh, and I went to the comment section uh, in Breitbart. And there you will find Bob Ewell. Um, you'll find him all over the place. You'll find him in the comment section of every single article there. Uh, and a lot of Bob Ewell's dialogue in the play uh, was lifted right from Breitbart. I, 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 what you're saying uh, makes political sense to me. And not just political, I mean. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying, that not every Trump supporter is uh, a, a toothless, ignorant racist. But... Doesn't it say something about them that uh, they are racist adjacent, right? Doesn't it say something about them that they would be a member of a country club that doesn't uh, accept Jews or blacks uh, or, or women? Um, do, doesn't it say something about them that it that it what was what what was it they liked uh, uh, about him? It may be lower taxes. It, it, Fewer regulations. It, it, you know, I, I think it. I think honestly that it is. Uh, I'm not defending any of uh, the uh, the Bob Ewells of the world. No, of course. But not. I think that you know, I, I do think we live in a time of uh, just wrenching change, mm -hmm. and uh, that change. You've written about some people who are on the cutting edge of that change. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. If you're on the right side of that divide. The, the opportunities are enormous and endless, and it's created uh, this uh, polarization that, um, you know, and there's a cultural overlay as well, but I think there are a lot of people who feel um, like they're on the losing end of that bargain, and he swept them up, you know. he. There, there's no doubt about it, and I sympathize with that. And, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Steve Bannon uh, weaponizing uh, uh, the idea that 
Uh, these people think they're better than you. They look down on you. You're in the flyover states. They're the elites. They're the elites. They're the elites. And uh, the word elite somehow is right. a bad word when elitist was supposed to be the bad word, uh, not elite. And sure enough, if you go on Breitbart, that's the engine behind everything. Yeah. You think you're so much better than I am. That's the engine behind Bob Ewell. Um, uh, until yes. Atticus does something in the play he doesn't do uh, in the book or the movie, he loses it right. uh, uh, for a second. Right. Um, uh, and see, start shouting, you, you think I'm... You think I think I'm better than you because I am. Um, uh, I look down on you because down is where you are. Uh, and the speech goes on. Uh, I think that not just what put Trump over the top, but I, 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 I think that the, uh, and again, I'm an amateur saying this to a professional. Uh-huh. It feels to me like what Trump was and is is simply an excellent stick with which to poke liberals in the eye. Um, uh, that they can't get enough of the schadenfreude. They can't get enough of our being driven out of our minds that this guy uh, won the election. They're wrong. It doesn't have anything to do with we're upset that Hillary lost. I'm a Democrat. I Most of the time, the person I vote for loses. Uh, uh, we're used to that. We're not upset that our person lost. We're upset that the President of the United States is a heart-stoppingly stupid, piggish, and incompetent person. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. Whatever his limitations are, he does have a feral genius for the modern media environment and how to game it. I mean, that, that should not be dismissed. I think people make the mistake of underestimating him. And that combination and the willingness not to live by any boundaries makes him different than people we're accustomed to in politics. Listen, I guess I'll go all in on disagreeing with David Axelrod. Yeah, no, no, go uh, ahead. Uh, uh, but, uh, um, open that- invitation. Whenever I, I hear a sentence that somehow, you know, you, you've got to give him that he's brilliant at, and it's usually uh, media manipulation that they're talking about, I don't give him that. Okay. I, I don't think he's brilliant at that. I think it, it's, I think he's exactly uh, what he looks like. I don't think any of this is strategy uh, or anything No, I like think that. it's instinctual in many ways, but um, he, knows how to, he knows how to dominate the day. Okay, and, you know this. And- the, the, uh, the these past few days, um, where he he went Twitter crazy, right? Uh, uh, I think about a hundred tweets yeah. uh, and, and retweets. It could be that carpal tunnel disease is what defeats Trump. <laughs> you never know. But uh- um, you know, uh, I remember in in the very early days of Twitter, uh, a Maureen Dowd column. She went and. Uh, interviewed the the two guys whose names I'm uh, forgetting now, uh, who founded Twitter. Um, and uh, she said, okay, my first question, why do you want to ruin the world? Um, uh, <laughs> and I, I I didn't quite know what Maureen was talking about until now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it is kind of a primal yeah. device. I, I, um, I, I don't... 
I don't need uh, you to subscribe uh, okay. to my formulation. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back. Trust me, we'll come back to this. Just know, if we're all in a lifeboat together, I'm definitely following your orders. I, I'm, yeah. I'm not debating you there. Well, we're on terra firma now. So. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, you know, um, listening to you talk about your family, um, and uh, I mentioned this anxiety thing, how much internal pressure did you feel uh, to succeed? To, to be good at something, to, be, to make an impact with what you were doing. And this is, I missed the transition from you were about to tell me when I interrupted you about 15 minutes ago about how you fell into, because acting didn't, you know, you were like a million other actors. Yeah. Uh, like your, one of your roles was in a moose suit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I had a, a, a dozens of survival jobs yes. uh, uh, in New York, including dressing up as a moose and passing out leaflets. <laughs> um, uh, primarily, uh, my job, uh, I mean, I, I moved to New York uh, when I was 22. Uh, a Few Good Men opened on Broadway when I was 28. So uh, primarily my job for those six years was working as a bartender in Broadway theaters. Uh, and uh, I, I wrote... A few good men on cocktail napkins. At least you were on Broadway. I, I felt that way. Uh, <laughs> honestly, I felt like you know this is the bottom rung, uh, but it's the bottom rung of a ladder I want to climb. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and and I did feel like uh, I was on Broadway. I loved being in those theaters and uh, at least hearing the first act of uh, of a lot of plays and musicals. I wrote a few good men on cocktail napkins during the first act of La Caja Fall. Uh, at the palace theater. and and you wrote it after talking to your sister who who actually was a military lawyer who represented someone who's being court-martialed at gitmo that's right uh before gitmo was the world's most right. famous prison it was a um a very unimportant uh on naval base uh, uh that we had kept it castro's predecessor uh, uh batista baptista um uh, gave it to the United States in perpetuity. It was, I think, originally it was a place where ships refueled, and then we mm -hmm. didn't need that anymore, so it was kind of an R&R &R, uh, uh, place. And then it was kept because it bugged the hell out of Castro uh, uh, that we were there. Castro said, get out, and we said no. Um, uh, and Castro built a wall and put Cuban soldiers there with guns, and we built our own wall and put Marines there uh, so, with so, guns. So your sister told you this story. My sister, who uh, graduated from law school, wanted to get courtroom experience uh, and join the JAG Corps, the JAG Advocate General's yes. Corps, uh, in the Navy, uh, called me uh, one day and said, you're not going to believe where I'm going tomorrow. We have this uh, base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and um, th uh, these 10 Marines um, have been accused of uh, giving this kid what they call a code red which is a, a, a hazing uh procedure uh and he almost died uh in the in the play in the movie he i, I did have him die but mm -hmm. uh, uh, he is still alive i'm glad to say and i said debbie uh, uh god you should hang these guys from the highest yard arm uh and she said yeah i would but i'm defending them <laughs> i said well in that case take notes tell me everything <laughs> when you get back and that became the inspiration for a few good men and which was a phenomenal Play. I should ask you, um, you, you're back in theater now. Mm -hmm. You're well known as a screenwriter, television writer, um, but your roots are really 
in theater and stage. Yeah, I'm an accidental writer of movies and television. It's a happy accident, to be sure. And but A Few Good Men was the sort of gateway to that. I was just supposed to go to L.A. It's, it's an old story. Uh, I was supposed to go to L.A. for a little bit, uh, adapt the screenplay, be on the set uh, while we were shooting, and then I was going to come back uh, and write my second play. Uh, but I, it would be 14 years uh, before that would happen, uh, and then 11 years later in my third play, which is To Kill a Mockingbird. And um, do you prefer writing for the stage? I love that I get to write for, that I get to write movies, television shows, and plays. I love that I get to do all three. I don't take it for granted. I'm incredibly lucky. But my favorite place to be is uh, pacing in the back of a, uh, in the back of the orchestra during previews or in a rehearsal room where the floor is uh, all taped out. And There's just nothing like it. But it. But you can't reach the audience with a play. You can perhaps over time. Looks like To Kill a Mockingbird could have quite a long run here. Mm -hmm. But you reach a lot of people at once uh, on the little screen. or the Yeah, the most people you're going to reach is with uh, a, a, a television show. I mean, assuming it's a, uh, it's a, it's a hit show. Mm. Uh, one of the things that's changed you know, in the television landscape, the audiences. now that there are yeah. 300 channels instead of three, uh, is that uh, a TV show can survive with uh, an audience of 600,000 um, uh, instead of you don't need 10 million uh, anymore to stay on the air. Uh, but the, the largest audience you're going to get is with a TV show. The second largest you're going to get is with a movie. And the smallest you're going to get is with a play. But uh, that, that doesn't bother me uh, at all. I, um, what you do get is the experience standing in the back of the orchestra, of being there with the audience uh, uh, when they're watching the play. You know, I've, I've, never, uh, I've never experienced an audience watching the West Wing. Uh, that's something that people do in, in the I living have. rooms. In oh. I run this Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and uh, the kids have West Wing nights. Uh, Are you kidding? No. And uh, In fact, Eli came and spoke to one of them, it's interesting to me um, how that is translated to this this time and place, and um, you know it does speak to um, a sense of idealism out there that people are searching for, thirsty for, yeah. uh, uh, starving for. Yes, I like to write uh, romantically and idealistically, and The West Wing. Uh, in popular culture, uh, I've noticed our leaders, uh, elected leaders, really only ever portrayed either as Machiavellian or dolts. Uh, and you know, and I thought, what if uh, there was a show about? Uh, and it helped that I'd written the American President, a romantic yeah, comedy that took place in the in the nineties. Rob Reiner, kind of, right? Rob Reiner directed. Michael Douglas. Um, it really was a forerunner to the West Wing. It was my. Uh, a, a typical screenplay is about 125 pages. Uh, my screenplays tend to run longer just because I, I, I have a lot of dialogue. Yeah. Dialogue takes up more room on the page and less time on the screen than action, which takes up less room on the page and more time on the screen. So my screenplays will be 140, 150 pages. The first draft of The American President... That's why President, everybody talks fast. They have to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they have to get everybody home. 
<laughs> my first draft of the American president was 365 pages long. Uh, I, I delivered it to Rob in a shopping bag. Um, and I'm going to tell you in a second why I, even by my own standards, um, I couldn't, just, just loved writing, couldn't, couldn't stop writing this thing. Uh, but uh, a, a, cup, a couple of the things that I cut to, got, to get it down to you know, feature film length so that it wasn't something that was seven hours for yes. dinner break uh, ended up being uh, moments in the first couple of episodes of The West Wing. But in both those cases, uh, what we saw was uh, a hyper-competent group of people uh, who, listen, there's sometimes, you know, they're going to slip on banana peels, uh, but it's always going to be uh, uh, trying to reach high. It's always going to be trying to uh, do the right thing, working hard. They're going to lose as much as they win, um, but it's not going to be a cynical look at, <clears throat> excuse me, at government or politics. What, what had really drawn me in, um, uh, and, and the reason why I like writing about politics now and the reason why I'm, I like reading about uh, politics now is that in the early going on the American president, uh, what happened was I, it, it was early in my career. A few good men uh, had just come out now. And Robert Redford uh, got in touch with me because he had always wanted to play a widowed president of the United States mm -hmm. who falls in love. He just thought that that was a, and he didn't have anything uh, beyond that. Uh, and I thought, well, it's a good start and it's good casting. Um, so let me, uh, it, it was, you know, he had a deal at a studio and a studio uh, hired me to write this. And just like with what I was talking about with Bob Yule, that I feel like I need to make some real life connection to what I'm writing. Otherwise, it's just going to sound like other things that, uh, that other people uh, had written. Uh, I got a hold of, oh, it was a very good researcher that got a hold of, um, I'm trying to think of what it's called. Is, is it the uh, President's Daily Diary? Yeah. It, mm -hmm. uh, going, daily Brief, yeah. Uh, not the not Daily the brief. brief. This yeah. is, and this yeah. isn't Dear Diary, Today She Looked at Me. Right. Um, uh, it, but it is it's simply, calendar of... Uh, uh, yes, it's, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and pretty detailed. Yes. Uh, at 8 o'clock to 8.05, yeah, right. exactly. uh, uh, the president met with the agriculture secretary. I don't think they do it quite the same way now, but... Yeah, I had. I don't think they do either. Yeah. But I had. Um, I think from Jimmy Carter going back to Herbert Hoover, and I was just fascinated uh, uh, by these things because yeah. the the presidents became people to me uh, at that point. Yeah. Um, when they would go back to the residence uh, for ten minutes, and suddenly I, I just began thinking, uh, when the president runs out of toothpaste. Uh, uh, what, what happens? Uh, how does that work? Does he, uh, he tells a valet or a butler, I've, I've run out of toothpaste. It, it, oh, I was overcome, uh, uh, with the idea that these guys aren't Kings. Yeah. Um, uh, they are people with temp jobs, uh, yeah. that, that are incredibly important. And so my favorite moments in the American president and in the West wing were always when either Michael Douglas or Martin Sheen, when we saw them as fathers, uh, uh, as as people, husbands and uh, and wives, that kind of thing. Well, even in their roles as presidents, I thought what you captured well 
is that the things that come to a president's desk are often, they're always complex and often more ambiguous than, you know, it's not, here's the obvious choice. There are always things to weigh, equities to weigh. It's never quite as clean as you'd like. And it's a, it's an unbelievably diff, if you're if you're doing it right, it's an unbelievably difficult job. Uh, I, you know? I, I can only imagine, and I imagine that uh, uh, for someone like you, watching West Wing episodes where things happened uh, in, a, in a much easier way than they would happen in real life, had to have been frustrating. Um, one more thing about those diaries, uh, I was because. The researcher had gotten me the diaries going back to Herbert Hoover. Um, I I was so curious. I just had to see uh, on October 29th, uh, 1929, uh, the day the market crashed. Uh, what, what did Hoover uh, uh, do? Did it, say, did it say get money out of bank? It, it, <laughs> no, but at 4 o'clock, um, there was some kind of cocktail reception in the mess. Uh, uh, in the White House mess. And 4 o'clock is when the stock exchange closes. And I'm just thinking, I'll bet you he had a couple of drinks. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, prob- probably so. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. There was a day in the White House early in the time that we were there and uh, when uh, President, we were supposed to meet with him to decide whether he was going to bail out the American auto industry. Mm-hmm. Not, not a small decision. He was delayed because there, was, uh, there were some uh, national security issues rel- relative to North Korea and some of the stirrings there. Uh, then he went, we had 45-minute discussions. I can't possibly... Uh, conclude this now we're going to meet tonight come we'll reassemble tonight he went on to do a town hall meeting on the economy which was cratering at the time uh a meeting on afghan the war in afghanistan which was raging mm-hmm. then a separate meeting on iraq then we can re uh assembled and talked for an hour and a half a highly emotional and uh provocative meeting in which he decided we're going to move forward on this I get back to my office, phone rings. It's Rahm Emanuel, the chief of staff. He says, get in here right away. Fargo's underwater. It was a flood. And I hung up the phone, and I said to myself, is this real or is this an episode of the West Wing? <laughs> this can't all be happening in one day. Uh, but, it, but I have to say it sounds like a great episode. Um, <laughs> uh, but so, And you did have a lot of folks who were involved in, the, in politics uh, helping That's right. you. Um, uh, including you've mentioned Eli Addy a couple of times yeah, and I, he was I, a speechwriter for Al Gore. He was a speechwriter for Al Gore. I, I, he, he was, um, indispensable, uh, on the West wing. I, I love Eli personally. Uh, and, uh, he, he made a phenomenal contribution to that show. Uh, it was in fact, Al Gore who recommended Eli, uh, and, um, I, Sitting here in this room is Lauren Lohman, uh, who's been my assistant for 20 years. Uh, she's a very strict gatekeeper. Uh, and uh, she came into my office uh, one day, and, and Al Gore was still vice president uh, at the time. He had just lost 
uh, uh, the 2000 election, the extended uh, 2000 election, uh, which is why Eli Addy was now free to, uh, to look for another job. Lauren uh, came into my office uh, and said, Vice President Al Gore is on the phone. Do you want to take the call? <laughs> yeah. Um, Did you think for a moment, well, gee, he's looking for a job. Maybe I can cast him. <laughs> yeah, maybe he wanted to be a consultant. <laughs> <clears throat> but we did. We had great consultants: Lawrence O'Donnell, Dee Dee Myers, uh, Pat Cadell, who just recently passed away. Passed away. Uh, and uh, what I would do is, uh, I, I would kind of set up a version of my family's dinner table uh, arguments. If I could get these guys uh, arguing about something, and by the way, they, they all love playing devil's advocate too. And I would tell them, uh, the consultants. Uh, listen, I, I I want you to tell me what you think, and then I need you to tell me what the really smart person in the room who disagrees with you uh, is going to say. Uh, so the the a, a lot of great episodes came out of these guys arguing with yeah. each other. Um, I I asked you earlier uh, about because I'm really interested in how hyper productive, creative people work. You're legendarily a hard worker uh and uh but i asked you about the whole the pressures the internal pressures to succeed to succeed yeah um i i I didn't i came from a place scarsdale new york i i I was born here in new york city and and uh uh, went to a a lefty private school in the village called the little red schoolhouse yeah uh, sure i was eight years old uh i i went to school with um the children of people who are blacklisted and the children of people who name names. Yeah. So on nights when there was, you know, a recital or something, you know, the, the, the choir was saying there'd be fist fights uh, out in the <laughs> lobby. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, my family moved to Scarsdale uh, when I was eight. And that's a community where people succeed. Um, it's simply expected yeah. of you. you Upscale you, you go suburban to community. College. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, and then then you succeed. <clears throat> I didn't feel that pressure uh, uh, to succeed. I didn't feel pressure from my my parents uh, or my surroundings. The pressure I felt, which is exactly the same right now, um, uh, that that hasn't dissipated in any way, is that. Uh, I live and die with with the things that I write, uh, with the success or failure of the things that I write. And I'm not talking about box office success. Mm-hmm. Um, if if I'm not writing, if I'm not doing anything, uh, or if I'm if I've written something that that didn't work, it's it's a very tough pill for me to uh, swallow. Uh, and yeah, but you're out there, man. When you, especially when you're, when you have achieved what you've achieved, and you achieved it at an early age. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time you engage in a project, I mean, outside the theater last night, your name was fairly prominent on the, on the. Yeah, so you're it, it, out, you're out there, and you're being judged. I mean, it's a little bit like politics. That's right. Uh, you, when you're a public person, you're judged by the public. There is no doubt about it. You're judged by the public. You're judged by your peers. Uh, 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 by your peers, there you know there, there used to be uh, a, a handful of critics 
uh, uh, that that mattered, and, a, and another handful that that mattered a little bit less. Uh, now, with the internet, there are thousands uh, of critics, and your report card is going to be published uh, everywhere. You do learn as a result of that uh, to give up on the dream of pleasing everybody. Uh, that is never going to happen. And how about uh, pleasing yourself? That's uh, uh, that's incredibly important. That's all uh, that you can do. Asking for, trying to figure out what it is everybody wants uh, and and giving it to them. That, that's a bad recipe for good storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I can't picture in my if i'm writing a movie i i or an episode of television i can't picture in my mind the millions of people uh who are watching it uh and and again i I don't know what they want or how to give it to them what i can do is write something i like something i think my friends would like something i think my father would like and keep my fingers that's important to you your dad yeah my dad passed away uh, uh two or three years ago and uh it is important to me, not not in an unhealthy way, not in um, uh, you know you know the 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 son of the college athlete who never mm-hmm. made it to the pros, and so he wants his kid to uh, uh, not that kind of thing. But um, and I think that if you ask a lot of people, I think most people will tell you that their father was Atticus Finch. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my father was Atticus Finch. Mm-hmm. I I and. Uh, doing right by him, making him proud uh, is important. But uh, as I said, I, I don't think in an unhealthy way. Uh, but I you just, did, you, I, I, I have to ask, because sure. part of being a public person is everything's public, and you mm-hmm. had a very well-publicized, and you've talked about it, uh, bout drugs. with drugs. Yeah. Um, and how much of that was sort of self-medicating against some of these pressures? I think probably uh, uh, a lot. Um, I in, had never tried drugs in high school or college. Uh, I, I was 25 uh, the first time uh, I ever tried pot uh, and the first time I did a line of cocaine. And I remember thinking to myself, it's a good thing I don't have any money because if I did, this could be a problem. Uh, and then I started making money. And uh, the problem with drugs is that they work uh, right up until the moment they end your life. Uh, uh, just destroy it completely. Uh, you'll either be dead or you'll, you'll wish you were dead, uh, but it, it's going to be one or the other. Um, and uh, I thought I needed cocaine to write. Uh, I would only, back then, I would only write after the sun went down, uh, after my dealer ha- had come over. Um, and you use cocaine and you think you're the king of the world. Everything uh, you're doing is brilliant and you're powerful and you've got energy and uh, mm-hmm. uh, you're hilarious. That would be one of the reasons for the 365-page uh, first draft of American <laughs> mm-hmm. President, by the way. Uh, and it was... Um, I had uh, what they call a, a high bottom, uh, uh, which is to say I, uh, I didn't lose my family, lose my house, lose my job, uh, uh, that kind of thing. Um, you know, what I had were uh, some good friends uh, who said, you know, listen, um, you need to go to rehab. And uh, I got a phone call out of the blue from someone I'd never met or spoken to in my life, Carrie Fisher. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, who called and said, I know 
that you think uh, you're not going to be able to write uh, without Coke. You have to trust me. You're going to write better. Uh, she was right. You, um, uh, I dropped a point before uh, when you said you, you convinced yourself that you needed cocaine to. Yeah. When did you discover that you didn't? Well, um, I went to rehab. I went to Hazelden uh, uh, in Minnesota. It, it's fantastic. I was there for 28 days. Uh, uh, and it, I, 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 when I went there, um, I, I was not going there uh, uh, for the right reasons. I just thought that this, um, this fortune cookie stuff of you know one day at a time and the twelve steps and all that that's not going to work on me. Um, um, but Probably what pretty a, common actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I'll I'll go there. Uh, I'll go there because I can hear the footsteps. Um, I'm I'm going to be caught. Uh, so I'm going to go there. I'm going to win everyone's trust back. Um, I'll put 28 days between me and the last time I used, uh, but I'm absolutely going to use again. Um, when I get out of here, there's no way I'm not, uh, using cocaine for the rest of my life. Uh, and I'll be a good patient. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to put up a, a, a struggle. I'm going to do what I'm told and, uh, uh, make my bed on time and, uh, I'm, I'm not going to cause any trouble. That's, I think, how everybody uh, goes there. I, I thought I was alone. Yeah. Um, they don't care that that's how you're going there. It's fake until you make it. Uh, by day 10 or 11 uh, of the 28 days, I don't know uh, uh, what happened. This All that fortune cookie stuff that I was putting down was working. It was making sense uh, uh, to me. Um, and I really liked not just being healthy, but understand that um, when you're using, when you're a, a drug addict, you're lying all the time uh, uh, to people. You're lying about why you missed that meeting or didn't return that phone call or uh, the, the whole shebang. It's, it's awful. And I, I wasn't doing that uh, uh, anymore. I was a good guy. Um, and uh, so I got out uh, of Hazelden, and now what I was worried about was... You know, I had to go back to writing, uh, uh, right? I wasn't going to abandon my career. If nothing else, I had to earn uh, a living. And what I didn't want to face was the, the, the hardest part for me of writing is, is the not writing. Uh, the, you know, you're, you're supposed to write a movie in the yeah. six months of climbing the walls yes. and, and pacing around your office and, and, and yeah. your living room uh, because you don't have an idea and how are you supposed to fill up yeah. 140 of these uh, uh, blank pages, and this is where you're going to get caught uh, as a fraud. That that last one you did That's was a fluke. So, yeah. um, and I knew that being back there, uh, you're just one phone call away uh, to your dealer. Bring the coke over. I'll have plenty of uh, plenty of ideas. So early on in the, in those uh, early stages of recovery, um, I was actually helped out by of all people Jerry Bruckheimer, um, who would hire me uh, to do dialogue polishes on his action movies, uh, like The Rock and Enemy of the State and, uh, uh, and a couple of others, which was perfect because I didn't need to come up with an idea. Uh, right. Somebody had done that already. All I needed to do was sharpen the witty barbs between Nicolas Cage and, uh, and Sean Connery. And for the first time, I was writing when the sun was up. And I'll never forget um, uh, when I like, faxed, 
Jerry, the you know the first scene that I'd written, six pages, the first pages in years uh, uh, that I had written straight, um, uh, that I had written when the sun uh, came up. It there was nothing memorable uh, on those pages. It was far from the best writing uh, uh, that I'll ever do, but it was really important uh, uh, for me to uh, to get through that. And uh, now, it you know it the more uh, the more time you have, that's uh, that's what we call it. And uh, I've got nineteen years and uh, change now. Do you still battle those there, impulses? Yeah, there are still times um, when I have to put my head down on my desk uh, uh, just for a second. There are still times uh, my dealer won't come over after ten p.m. Uh, so when I'll think, you know, just to get to 10 p.m., uh, just get to 10 p.m., and then uh, uh, you don't have to think. Uh, the the danger, uh, it's common to think that the, uh, that the danger for addicts is if we're under pressure, if we've just gotten some bad news, if there's just been some kind of shakeup uh, uh, in our lives. Uh, first of all, people listening to this should know addicts don't need a reason uh, uh, to drink or, or use. We drink or use because uh, we're, we're addicts. With me and with a number of other people, the biggest danger isn't that, it's opportunity. Uh, if, if I know that, I, that there's a, a weekend, a Friday through Sunday, where I'm not supposed to be anywhere, where I'm a father uh, now, I, I wasn't then. Um, if, you know, if my daughter's going out of town with her mother, uh, I'm not expected to be at a meeting. I start doing uh, all the mental math. I could get high Friday night, be kind of sobered up uh, uh, by Sunday morning, face the world Monday morning uh, uh, just fine. Once you start thinking that, just the chemistry in your body changes. You can, you can feel it. Your stomach uh, uh, starts churning. And that's when you need to do things uh, uh, what I'll do is um, uh, I, I'll, I'll I'll make an appointment. Um, uh, I'll you know I'll, I'll say let's fill your calendar. Yeah, yeah. Um, if, if I just can have some place to yeah. be. Uh, that that uh, ongoing then, struggle is uh, is so difficult. I mean, poor Carrie Fisher is an example. Yeah. Of it, uh, she saved your life, but couldn't save her own life. That's right. Um, I just want to finish by reading. I loved your show, The Newsroom. I'm an old newsman. Oh, thank you. And uh, I loved it. And I have a very romantic view of, of, of journalism, having grown up in a newsroom. So do I. And I hate the beating that journalism is taking these days. You're a character played by Jeff Daniels, Will McAvoy. And I think the very first episode gave this oration that you obviously wrote saying uh, someone, uh, the, the issue came up. Uh, of is America great? He, yeah, he's at a Q and A at a college, and uh, uh, he's asked by one of the students what makes America the greatest country in the world. And he said we. St- uh, he and he he started talking about why America we're not. isn't great. Right. He said we stood up for what was right. We in the past we fought for moral reasons. We passed laws, struck down laws for moral reasons. We waged wars on poverty, not poor people. We sacrificed. We cared about our neighbors. We put our money where our mouths were. And we never beat our chest. We built great big things, made ungodly technological advances, explored the universe, cured disease, and we cultivated the world's greatest artists and the world's greatest economy. We reached for the stars, acted like men. We aspired to intelligence, and we didn't belittle it. 
It made us feel, it didn't make us feel inferior. We didn't identify ourselves by who we voted for in the last election, and we didn't scare so easy. First step in solving any problem and recognizing there is recognizing there is one. America is not the greatest country in the world anymore. Um, how how do those words resonate with you today? Great words, by the way. Oh, thanks very much. Um, I uh, listen. In addition to uh, writing romantically and idealistically, I I, I think that way uh, too. Um, I I have enormous faith. Uh, in this country, uh, I really do. Even with the strain that we're going through uh, uh, right now, uh, I think that. And Jeff, as Atticus says this uh, uh, in the play, that our darkest days have always been followed by our finest hours. Uh, and what that speech was. Uh, was about mostly was the uh, it's all I, I know we're running out of time it's made me sad I, I would love to see the Democrats reclaim the word patriotism um, uh, a real brand of uh, of patriotism not patriotism is about not taking a knee uh, at a football game right um, and that's what that speech was about it, it, it was an anti-boosterism speech uh, it, it was what now remember we're also in, in that speech we're watching a guy have a breakdown mm -hmm. uh, right um, he's hallucinating or maybe not that his girlfriend right, who left him right. is sitting in the audience yeah. uh, uh, prompting him as a producer yes. uh, a, a newscast um, holding up cues yeah yeah. Uh, she's the one who wrote on the pad um, it's not uh, and uh it's what, what breaks his back, what makes him snap, is sort of the banality of the what makes America the greatest country in the world. Um, he, he's just heard that too many times without any backup. Uh, uh, you know. Um, so uh, listen, if there is a way to say, uh, let's make America great again, that doesn't sound horrible, uh, right? That doesn't sound like, well, that let's go else, back yeah. to, right. right. Um, well, uh, there are certain timeless virtues and values that make America that's right. exceptional. And uh, I share this view. I mean, I'm attracted to the things you do because we share this romantic. I wrote a book called Believer was my memoir, and it was not about a candidate or a, uh, it was about this democracy of ours mm -hmm. and, and, uh, the beauty of it when it works. So uh, I appreciate I appreciated this oration and so much of what you write because it is inspired by that place. That means the world to me, David. Thanks very much. It's great to be with you, Aaron Sorkin. Great. And if here. you're in town, go see To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a wonderful, wonderful production. Uh, I will. I've uh, seen it a few times. <laughs> <laughs> That's for everybody else. Okay. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, 
visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.